Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we will be discussing eco-leadership, future of work, and looking at intelligence through a new lens. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Richard Clayden, a global citizen, a transdisciplinary behavioral scientist, and the chief cognitive officer of the EQ Lab. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Cynthia. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for accepting. Richard, uh, you've been working in the field of behavior, leadership, and culture for many years now, and your research and work, you like to use them to disrupt and experiment. Your work has been described as cutting edge and indeed at the forefront of thinking in leadership and management. For me, never have we been more in need of this as leadership paradigms break down and stagnate and the world evolves in parallel at an exponential speed. Bridging the gap between digital and human, I like to call it, which for me means that we use digital to enable connection as opposed to controlling connection. And I feel like sometimes the two polarities of this are getting further and further apart. So we're using digital to enhance the human systems in place in organizations. And particularly after COVID, we're using what digital brings to control. So here we're going back to the discussion around ego, as opposed to enabling, which is where I think we should be transitioning to more of an eco approach. What are your thoughts around this and what it means for leadership? Are people losing trust in leadership per se? Oh, I think the data is is clear that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so you look you look at you look at the, the basic statistical data, and, and and trusted leadership has has been going backwards, um, yeah, for twenty odd years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get you get periods of time when trust in government leadership is higher, and trust in CEO leadership is lower, and then sometimes it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. So obviously, uh, when in, when you had all the big Enron scandals in the early two thousands, that there was very little trust in in organizational leadership and, and currently mm. at the moment there's very little trust in um in government leadership so there's yeah. a bit more with, with ceo but mo- most of the trust is with people you work with so it's, it's mm. your sort of connective group for the group of people um you talked about e- from ego, ego to eco and, and that sort of the notion of how digital is used so the mm. eco leadership model is um something i borrow from simon weston's work mm. and so he he's clearly identified how the leadership discourses of today are spitting and the way that you, you mm. talked about. Mm. So that we're either going to see a re-use of the control discourses, he calls it, and it's going to be digital tailorism and we're going to see that rise mm. and we're just going to use digital technology to, to, to reinstate tailorism on knowledge workers and what. Mm. Which is, is one way it's going to go, and then the other way is going to be the, the what he calls ecosystem leadership or eco leadership, which is much more about the connectivity and the ethics and the enabling of of people to to answer systemic level kind of challenges. Mm. Uh, and we're seeing a rise in both discourses. So, mm. so we're seeing you know we're seeing the death of the the, the culture and the messiah discourse. Yeah, messiah leadership discourse. This this transformational leadership and strong culture that's sort of all dying. And it's what replaces it. Mm. Will it be the return of the control discourse, where the, the 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 leaders and the managers just control productivity and people become cogs in a machine, or rather bits and bytes in the in a digital mm. uh, system? 
or will it be an enabling eco-leadership discourse where where everybody is um, given the opportunity to grow and become better and better versions of themselves and and, and do the adaptive work on the edges mm. of the organisation that's required for it to um, respond to ecosystemic challenges in mm. the market and, and in the world. But do you think digital tailorism, as, as, we, as you call it, I like that term, do you think that that is feasible in today's interconnected sort of ecosystem world? Uh, I think, yeah, I think, well, I think it's, I mean, feasible in terms of, yes, you can put the the control mechanisms into the technology, mm. but whether, whether it will just result in exactly the same thing that Taylorism did historically, yeah. which was, you know, pretty brutal working conditions and, and arguably control systems in, in, in the Second World War that related to the Holocaust and, and things mm. like that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a level of feasibility that, that the technology provides, mm. but it has a very, very dark side. And ultimately... I think it's going to negatively impact competitive advantage because if you're just controlling people yeah. from a, a very, very centralised top-down position and you're not allowing this kind of adaptive behaviours around the edges, mm. you are going to, you're not going to be able to adapt to the market the way that, that the startups and and, mm. and, and and the digital titans are. So mm. you're going to have the edges of your market eaten away from you. Yeah. Um, and once the edges have gone, well, then they can start attacking the centre of your market, and, and so that that for me is is the core element of of what's going on in terms of where the leaders need to think about. So, which which direction do the leaders need to think about going in? You know, where where actually is the strategic and competitive advantage mm. in in the use of digital technology? Yeah, because I was going to say, if I look at well, for talent, it's it's a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, you need to create a more enabled ecosystem that where people lead across boundaries as opposed to sort of in more command and control sort of siloed models. That yeah, and, and that's the, that's one of the two discourses. And and mm. I think we're still too early to call who, which one's okay. gonna come out on top. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like it to be the ecosystemic discourse. And, yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I mean, it's much more humane and, and uh, enabling, but but it doesn't mean just because it's humane and enabling that it's going to win because we've had lots of discourses in industrial yeah. history that are not mm. that and, and they come out on top. So, mm. If we take the hypothesis that that may win then, what does that mean for leaders today? Because it's quite a different skill set, isn't it? It's quite a different approach in terms of navigating the landscape they have to lead. The, the ecosystemic one, if that one yeah. yeah. Um Well, I mean, arguably, it, it's an extension of the discourse from the 1960s when, when they started to say, look, what, what you actually need is, is in a complex system, you, you need more democratic humanitarian leadership styles. Because, you know, in, so, so the, the, the very, the very sim- simple way of looking at it is, is what's the level of expertise that you mm. as a leader have and then the people that you're working with have? And then how do you, how do you lead them? So you know, this, this is really getting a whole bunch of com- complexity science and, and yep. trying to make yep. it as simple as possible. Uh, and we, we we're going back to ideas about leadership from the sort of the 1930s and the 1940s as well and, and then looking at that in, in, in this context. But really... So if you look at complexity science and specifically Dave Snowden's work, so yeah. if, if if you're the clear expert, mm. you're in the obvious domain and you mm. tell people how to do the job. Mm. So if, if you as the leader are fundamentally the expert in the field and, and mm. everybody that's working for you mm. is not as good as you, they don't have the level of expertise, they need to be directed 
well, then direct them. Don't try and turn things into coaching moments because then mm. they're going to get frustrated. And I, I just need to know what I'm doing because I don't understand it and I've got all this other work that I've got to do. So please tell me how to mm. do this because you're the expert. So you've got that at one level. So you're the leader and the expert. Right. If, you're, um, if you're one of many experts, you're in the complicated domain yeah. and you've got this linear process of how the work gets done. Uh, if, you're, if, you've, if there's no expert, you're in the complex domain and you've got to then collaborate and, and deal with the ambiguity, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And if you're in a crisis situation, whether you're the expert or not, no. if you're in a position of authority, yeah. you have to act because there's no time to do any of the other work. Mm. So there's, there's your four kind of levels based at where your expertise in the task being done is as a leader and then mm. how you should act. And I think that, you know, it, it's similar to contingency leadership modelling, yeah. but it's added some quite deep scientific studies as to why we need to do it this way yeah. and so that's where i think we're going to be going and i think a lot of the retraining of leaders has to be around you know what is your level of expertise in the domain yeah. and then how do you behave based on that level of expertise which is really brings me to the idea of collective intelligence i mean i know it's become a buzzword now a little bit like mm. uh, you know a little bit like agile or eco leadership in some ways you know they've all become these buzzwords but I would love it if you could walk us through your intelligence model that you yeah, do as part of yeah. your future of work series, because I think collective intelligence is only part of the story as you display in your model. And I think it's really mm. interesting, particularly for leaders to understand those different levels of intelligence, if you like, and what exists in the organizations and how they can leverage that both in predictable and unpredictable situations. Yeah, so we look at five five different ways to understand how intelligence is manifesting in your organisation and, and what it's being spent on and what does that mean in terms of energy mm. levels. Mm. And we actually have a we, – we've sort of tried to map it in terms of um, levels of productivity and performance, et cetera, et cetera, mm. as well, where, where you can sort of go, here's a nice linear scale as to how much you might be doing better compared mm. to um, – mm. and it, and it – it sort of looks quite an easy model when you look at it, but actually it took a long time to work out. I can imagine. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and I'll sort of try and go through the five levels. So, that, so the foundational level, which is a level that if, if all of your intelligence is being spent here, you're in real trouble. So th this is the fragmented intelligence, and this is when you're dealing with uh, just purely all of your effort is how do I stay alive in this kind of situation? It's yeah. resilience, it's well-being, it's, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to hold myself together, there's overwhelm, mm. I can't, I, I, you know, just getting through the day is all the energy that I've got and all of my attention is, is spent on getting through the day. Surviving, basically. Surviving the day, okay? Yeah. And, and, and you've got no capacity to, to contribute to anything else. And that includes promotion chances. Yeah. I mean, yeah. because you, you've, that's another level of energy that you're you're not even ready for. Mm. Okay, so that, that's your lowest level. And, and so we, we then look at uh, the notion of salutogenesis um, in dealing with that, which is a system of well-being. Mm. This is not this is not yoga mats. <laughs> this is a system of well-being related to the sense of coherence you have about the work you do. So mm. is it meaningful to you? Is it comprehensible to you? And do you have the resources to manage it? And if you have all of those three at that lower level, uh, at this foundational mm. level, you're actually not going to be struggling so much with your resilience and your well-being because you've got this, this coherent system that underpins you. You're suddenly in the next level up. Okay. Uh, the next level up is where I think the large majority of organisations are, and this is dramatic intelligence. 
And so this is where you're applying nearly all of your intellectual capacity into impression management. How do I get promoted? How don't I lose my job? How do I look like a good team player? How do I look like someone who could be uh, a leadership material etc how do i illustrate that i'm working really hard yeah how do i fit into the cultural mode how do i fit into the cultural mode all of this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. so then you feel like you sort of feel like you have two jobs when 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 you've got this dramatic intelligence element you've got sort of the 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 job you're being paid to do the productive performance Mm -hmm. work but you've also got the the job of how do how do i display that i'm that I'm part of this culture and this system and that I belong and all of these kind of things, that can easily flow down into the, the resilience thing. Is yeah. It actually starts to overwhelm you how much you have to play that role. And the further that role stretches you away from who you think you are, yeah. the more likely you're going to break into the fragmented area. Yeah, you're constantly switching codes, aren't you? It's that mask thing of this is who I am at work because I have to be seen to be doing this, this, this and this. I, I can yeah. imagine it's not... And, and, a lot of the coaching work I do relates to, you know what? It doesn't matter that it's a mask. <laughs> it's, it's, you just recognize. So, so you're mm. trying to get rid of the stress of yeah. having to play, play these masks. And you're going to, mm. it's fine that, that if you, if you see the dramatic stage of the work and you see your role when you recognize you're playing a role and you see everybody else's play, it takes away the stress. You begin to enjoy it. Yeah. And once yeah. you begin to enjoy it, then you're beginning to move into into the higher levels rather than be stretched away into, into the lower levels of mm. and, and having your intelligence fragmented. Um, we then, so the, the, the next level up, so you sort of go, okay, I, I'm no longer being drained by the dramatic intelligence. Mm. I, I've now crafted up, out space for myself to do the work. And then we're just looking at individual intelligence. So the classic predictor of whether you're going to get promoted or not and, mm. and you're well-being and, and life you know, overall life performance etc cetera, etc cetera. are you able to, to to sort of get to the top levels of your iq in the job you're doing purely uh, cognitive intelligence purely cognitive, mm. purely cognitive. Mm. and this is where this is where where the, the sort of the the numbers start to come in mm. because you look at you look at the purely individual level of performance, and you go right. The, the top people are two and a half times more, more two and a half times more productive than the average mm. in basic process work. Okay, so two and a half times more better than the average, but ten times better than the worst. So the worst would yeah. be right at the bottom of the well-being, mm. Mm. intelligence bit. Mm. But even the, the best are going to be two and a, in the, if they're, they're beginning to say, right, I, I can control my work. I can sit and be hyperproductive for four or five hours a day. Mm. They're still only going to be two and a half times better than the average. Okay, so you're sort of getting to that point. And then we're looking at the level above, which is collective intelligence, which is when a collective group of people have a higher, just the cognitive level, have a higher IQ than any individual member of the team. And they they end up solving problems more quickly, seeing better, different different perspectives and different ways out of, of the problem, et cetera. So you have all the multiple perspectives come in. And you, you actually need to have a sort of an emotional, emotional or social intelligence to glue yeah. the group together so that they're having you know, sort of psychologically safe kind of conversations. And you, you actually see the, the bounding of the conversation across the room and you'll see different groups talking mm. simultaneously mm. to each other, et cetera. So you, it looks quite chaotic to someone who's used to a classic Order. meeting, <laughs> you know, et cetera. But when you're in that kind of thing, you're then you're then going into the realms of 
what Netflix say, you know, 10 in the creative industry. And, and again, the, the stats sort of back them up that you, you tend to produce, if, you, if you're a, a, a team working together, mm. clustering around someone who's relatively well known, you're going to be 10 times better than average. Yeah. So you'll, you'll produce 10 times the amount of work than the average as this team. You've got the Steve Jobs claim, which is 25 to, to no, so 50 to 100 times. And he's saying you move into the future 50 mm. or 100 times faster than teams that don't operate like this. Yeah, because you're, you're activating you're, the emotional layer, aren't you, of the culture yeah. as opposed to just the cognitive layer? Or is that too pushing, No, you're doing both. And you, mm. But what you're doing is, is because you've got these people who are emotionally aligned to the job, they're collectively working together, and, and they're being tasked to be innovative. Yeah, It's how quickly you push you can, the technology and how far mm. you push the technology compared to the competition. In the software industry at the time he was working, it was 50 to, you could you could write software or push software 50 to 100 times further than your competition did because you had teams working mm. like And then right at the top, which is where I think the absolute gold lies, is the extended intelligence. And I don't think you can live in the extended intelligence space. But what you can do is if you've got a group of people who are collectively together all the time and are mm. used to doing the collective intelligence, but they have extended networks beyond them that they're mm. interested in and they tie into and they can bring in bits and pieces of this knowledge or even someone from this network to talk to the group, to mm. even, even just an individual conversation you've had and you've pulled in an insight that you would never, ever normally have pulled in mm. into the group. And the group goes, oh, my God, that's exactly what we needed to hear. Yeah. And then you suddenly jump, yeah, 300 times further than the competition or because mm. yeah, you're, you're, you're seeing something that no one else can see. And the Crick Institute in the UK designed their organisation, the, the way they, they have people meeting this way, where they will have, you know, maybe biochemists, biochemists here and physicists here. Mm. And they'll come and have coffee together. So they'll have a room where the two disciplines who don't normally talk to each other meet. And in those conversations in the room, they will have moments where one of them has said, oh, we've already solved this. Mm. And it's something the other group's been working on for four years. <laughs> and they just go, oh, my God, how did you do it? And then there's the whole whiteboard drawing mm. and things. And they go, oh, wow. And suddenly you've, you've, you've yeah. pushed You've the pushed dots. the dots and connected them in a way that, that nobody else mm. has in, in your in your field, and mm. you've moved so far ahead of the competition that in terms of money and or whatever your whatever your wherever you put your value, you're gonna be ahead of the game. I mean, that sounds fab, and it also sounds simple, and I know it's not simple as a process. Do you think that you can replicate that in today's organizational culture? Because if I come back to dramatic intelligence which is where the, the highest percentage of organisations are. Clearly, that's inhibiting psychological safety. <laughs> so, you know, if you can actually start moving up to the sort of collective intelligence layer, already seems quite a big leap for me. So do you think it's possible for organisations to create a culture where their leaders can get to extended intelligence? Yes, it's, it's difficult. And, and, mm. and the big challenge... I think, is the strategy execution gap mm. and the strategy operations gap. How people have become leaders, and they, they become leaders by, you know, doing their MBA, going into consulting, getting, mm. you know, targeting strategy is, is the most important thing, and networking with outsiders. So they sort yes. of, you know, they, they do, and then they get 
shoved into an organisation at a reasonably senior level, Mm. having not done any of the work in the trenches. And because they haven't done any of the work in the trenches, they don't understand how the trenches operate. Mm. So what they then do is they just look at, well, okay, and the, the, the standard way I talk about it now is their perspective is strategy is hard, operations is easy, and um, the human dimension of work is soft. Soft. Is that soft? Soft, soft I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, the, not the opposite of hard. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so they basically think that their work, the strategy mm. work, that's the high IQ stuff, and we, mm. we strategize where the organization is going. And operations is so easy that absolutely anybody could do it. Exactly the same way Frederick Taylor thought about manual work. Yeah, I was just thinking. Ago. Yeah, yeah. That, that he was just like, well, okay, the manual work is mm. so easy that nobody needs a brain cell to be able to do it. You've seen that shift over the last hundred years to mm. basic white collar operations work, mm. or clerical work. So easy, anybody can do it. And then the sort, you know, we don't we don't need to care about the human dimension of work. That's just soft. It's just about strategy. Mm. So the big the big shift is how do we teach people to take operations and, you know, if we use agile as a, as a mm. way that operations are going, which is an adaptable kind of way of doing the work where you need to have collective intelligence as these little groups of people doing mm. collectively intelligent work, that's not easy anymore. It's a highly complex task, if it even ever, ever was easy. It was easy, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's certainly not easy that you can just bring in an external person and go, right, let's create an agile environment and it's all going to be hunky-dory. And... We're now finding out after the pandemic that the human dimension of work is incredibly hard. Yeah, it's it's not so. So what we've what we've got is a is a, a generation of leaders through no fault of their own mm. because this is what they've been taught, what their parents have taught them is is important. Mm. Who are in organisations that are now changing underneath, transforming underneath them mm. into something completely different than the models they were taught to lead. Yeah, and they're not ready for it. And so the shift is, well, how do you prepare them to be ready for it? And, and that way, if, if, they, if they are willing, if they have little enough ego to hold on to mm. the way that they were taught to do things before and are willing to jump into, right, we, we can just look at trying to find some collectively intelligent pockets in the organisation that can start. And if they start working, well, let's do more of it. And you can go at all levels from, okay, how do you employ people? How do you promote people? How do you design the workplace yeah. plus digital space and connect yeah. them together? Yeah. There's a whole bunch of work that needs to be done. And I have no doubt that certain companies are going to do it because the, the advantage will become clear. And mm. once, some, once some do it, then the others are going to follow. Mm. But I, I think you're going to see a lot of big players suffer as, as smaller companies that start to recognise how to do this stuff start to ease into their market before they've responded. Yeah, and then and then they don't know how to respond, do they? <laughs> well, at the, moment, at, at the moment, they don't know. No. At the moment, they, they're locked into mm. a sort of a, a top-down command and control because yeah. the digital technology has been pushing people that way. And a lot of the platform stuff is around, like, we put this into the computer and it spits out stuff at you and you just do it. Yes. Yeah. And to the level of the key of, of the keystroke, you know, we, we, yeah. we actually that's one way of, of doing things. The digital monitoring system when people have been working from home for two years has brutalized people because mm. they they're just feeling like they're being watched all the time, yeah. that they're 
their their work has become more and more routinized and, and less and less dehumanized. Yeah. yeah, more de- there's no there's no interest in mm. anymore. You don't get to see anybody. You don't have different conversations. You don't have cups of coffee with people. Yeah. You're just in front of the screen. Yeah, and you look at you say, we're not even going to have any interesting travel in the future. No. So you've got all of this interesting human dimension of work which has been stripped away. The key thing I think that's been stripped away, with, and, and certainly some of my clients are beginning to see this, is the in betweenness. So it's not anything that's been formally designed. Yes. It's the bits between the design that have gone. It's the chatter that everybody used to have about the organisation, some of it good, some of it, what the hell did they mean by that? (laughs) That's disappeared. Mm. And because that's gone, it's actually negatively impacting organisation. Nobody thought that it was actually massively contributing to organizational performance but it hugely was and that is about recreating that whatever the final solution of hybridity is going to be is how do you create that in betweenness again yeah because without it we're going to be struggling yeah for people to recreate moments that matter and have conversations that matter outside of a screen type of thing (laughs) absolutely yeah which brings me back to the eq lab can you tell us Mm -hmm. more about the eq lab i know it's an extended intelligence laboratory network Mm-hmm. What are you looking to do with the EQ Lab and what goes on there? So what, what we really try and do, well, we, we do, I mean, we do some organisational training around mm-hmm. the notion of connecting people together during the training. Okay. So in, in, in essence, it, there's probably two things that happen. It's, mm-hmm. a live, it's a live cohort. Okay, so rather than cohort-based learning where you can join at any time, you actually have to be part of a live session and have a, a bunch of breakout live breakouts with people um, so that you're connect you're genuinely connecting with them and in, 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 in a quite a free way. So you've got a live cohort and then you've got a, a sort of a, a cognitive or, or mental gym model where, where you, rather than looking at, at sort of the physical fitness, you're looking at right, okay, how do we actually build people up beyond the fact that they spend all of their energy on just try not to fragment themselves or mm. everything dramatic is can can I extend myself and go further and actually go and visit this extended mm. intelligence universe and, and find insights from all over the world. And we, we mm. do have people from all over the world that I can bring back into my organization or how I work and, and in, a, in a very, very personalized way. So it's, it's mm. highly personalized. Oh, you know what that yeah, it's a completely different industry, a completely different country, mm. but I can I can sort of play around with that and I see that that fits here. Mm. And those have been, you know, those have been coming to our our sort of general sessions and they'll sort of say that something that they they'd learned six months ago suddenly is relevant. Makes sense. To, to, yeah. to something and makes sense and they start mm. to apply it. And then you're building these these incredibly interesting connections across the world. So we had someone in Singapore say that she had a challenge that she'd mm. been coming for about a year. Okay. And she had a challenge and she reached out to people in, in, that she'd known in, in Singapore for 15 years and nobody would help her. And so she reached out to the, to, to this, uh, to the EQ Lab network and hasn't met any of them and was overwhelmed by the number of people who mm. offered help and, and then helped her and they had connected with her and they had a chat and they talked her through it and then she found a solution. So you've got that 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 deepened connect, connectivity and you just go, right, and, and part of the extended intelligence thing is, you know what, I know yeah. in my network who can answer that question and yeah. I'm happy to go and ask them and, and, and get help. So that that's something else that's, that's part of it. So it's sort of a, a combination of all of those things and then because we have such an extended network of, of interesting people, we can teach pretty much anything. 
yes. uh, related to leadership and culture and organisational behaviour and, and complexity science and systems thinking. Mm. We've just got a, a group of people that, and, and they all know the methodology that we use so that mm. we can just plug, plug anyone in the, in the network in to sort of teach what needs to be taught uh, within this this sort of live cohort, deeply mm. connected kind of environment. It's a, great, it's a great example of, I find that very inspiring around, you know, listening to the system, you know, systems, voices and bringing in multiple perspectives as much as possible, which is for me the definition of inclusion and how you create human systems in, in an organisation. What what inspired you to set it up, and and um, what is dialogic learning? I know you use dialogic learning, and I would love you to just take us through that process of dialogic learning because I think it's a step away, f- and it's a step we need to take away from traditional leadership development and learning. Well, initially, what inspired us to set us up was was somewhat accidental. It was COVID. Yeah. Okay. because we we literally couldn't do physical yeah. workshops anymore so mm. we 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 looked at all of the things that we were doing and bastardized them into something that could work online and started playing mm. and we thank just you COVID. <laughs> yeah thank you covid and, and we just expected to get a few we were a few local people and then we you know rapidly had people from all over the planet mm. Uh, including you know every continent, including someone who works in Antarctica. So we're doing. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Um, so so you know we 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 sort of we that it was just taking what we were already doing physically, right. putting it online, and seeing what worked. Mm. What the core of what works is the dialogic. So there's a, a wonderful book called The Dawn of Everything. So David Grabner, Graeber and. Uh, I can't remember the other author, Wingrove, David, David Wingrove, something like that. And they talk about um, we're not very self-aware most of the time. We're not very aware of mm. anything. You know, mm. you only really be self-aware for about nine seconds unless you train yourself to, to be totally focused and be aware of the world, you know, the whole mindfulness. Mm. Thing. Mm. Except when we're in dialogue. So when we're in dialogue, we can remain, if, you, if you're deeply listening and, and then talking with meaning you can be self-aware for a long time and of course if you're self-aware then the learning the learning mm. so that that's sort of one aspect another aspect is okay learning should be like a dinner party yeah okay because we like dinner parties yeah we, we used to when we could have them yeah, um <laughs> so so what you have with a dinner party is what you're looking at is how do you get to the situation where the conversation is flowing normally sort of everyone's on their second glass of red wine and you're seeing this fluid mm. fluid dialogic conversation going on people are part of this conversation and they're going off to that a different conversation you never see more than four people actually talking at once so it's mm. always around these small little groups so it's how can you create that all the time so the learning is it feels like a fluid conversational mm. experience around a topic yeah where people are coming in with different levels of expertise you've got an expert in the, in, in the plenary session that you can also ask questions to when you come back but you're having this fluid conversational mm. experience and then we add things you know we, we look at well if you're we try and interrupt the conversations so it doesn't feel finished right because if it doesn't feel finished then it sticks in your head yeah and then you'll continue learning because you'll oh, you'll see something and go, oh, that mm. relates to what I just learned. And this and it's also not linear, so it can happen yes. in any order. Right. And that again, it sticks in your head if it's not yeah. linear. You can go in anywhere. So we, we've used the phrase the term rhizomatic. You can go mm. anywhere, in anywhere, and you can exit anywhere, and your route through it can be any route. 
Yeah. So you've got all of that kind of going. So it's about the stickiness of the learning. It's about the percolation of ideas because mm. they're staying in your head and they're bubbling around. And three weeks later, suddenly you get a spark. And uh, so, so it's to keep it as lively as possible. And it's to prevent somebody standing in the front of the room talking at you for two hours. Yeah, telling you what they know. Telling you what they know. Yeah. So it's it's all around. And, and everything I did uh, in the physical world was related to that. Right. But we've just stripped it to the simplest possible form in the online world. So yeah. you can do it simply with a Zoom call. And you don't need anything else other than Zoom. And, and, and you can do it. So mm, That's brilliant because Zoom can be so transactional. <laughs> I have to ask you this. What's what's your most disruptive idea to date? The one that gets you really most excited about human potential? I mean, it's still probably the PhD work, which mm-hmm. is the work on irony. Mm-hmm. So, so the work I look at, it, it's the response to organisational gaps. So often I use the response to organisate the gap of organisational culture, so the rhetoric and the reality are very different. Yeah. I just yeah. 90, 90. 90 plus percent of people will go, yeah, obviously, uh, is how do you respond to that gap? So you, you can sort of refuse that it exists and you can become a zealot for the, the, the value system. And of mm. course, that's actually quite unhealthy. You can become bewildered and bothered by the gap and, and actually start breaking down. So we're going back into that fragmented kind of experience. But the, 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 the sort of three ways of responding to the gap, you can be, you become very, very cynical about it. You can become, and so that's the sort of disgusted reaction. You can become, um, you can despair and become apathetic, or you can find joy in it, and that's when the irony comes in. Yeah. So you start to play around. So every time you see a gap, you start to play around in it. And that in nearly every organisation I've ever worked with, they would say that's disengagement and troublemaking. <laughs> okay, that was my next um, question. <laughs> whereas the, the research clearly yeah. indicates it's, high-performing people doing high-performance work, that, that they're doing it in the backstage and in play because if they, if, they, if they reveal it, if they voice it, there's a risk that they're going to get their head cut off. So they do it anyway in a playful, covert kind of way. It generates value, but they're doing it in a way that, you know, because they're doing it that way because doing it any other way will likely get them fired. Yeah, so they sort of do it under the radar so that it gets, and then they take it up when it's yeah. And it sort of relates to the in between space again. Yeah. It's happening everywhere, all the time, but everyone's hiding it because it's mm. seen. It's 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 seen as troublemaking or, or being a bad apple. Some people do make trouble, and some people yeah. are bad apples. Yeah. But not everybody who gets cast like that. You know, there's an awful, mm. there's a big grey area in between, and mm. and so for me, the the ironic sense, the, the ironic sense maker in the organisation is in that grey area in between, and I think the research clearly shows that if you identify them, and then make sure there's some in each team, or one in each team, you're going to be in a in a really good place. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that is is regarded as is incredibly disruptive. I've only ever had one client who has just come to me because I talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. said, oh, that's, that's why we've come to you. Normally I talk about it in very different ways, but mm. still trying. So, yeah, it would be great for people to get curious about it and actually come to you to, to get more curious and understand how they can actually do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, so there's still, I mean, even in, in the mainstream literature, there's, mm. there's still this notion of ironic management and ironic leadership being the highest level. Um, yeah, you know, that's that's where your 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 really great leaders sort of get to, where they see multiple perspectives and they see mm. gaps, and, and then they hold mm. it all together and, and, and sort of take organisations into them. 
But within the organizational body, yeah, the same, exactly the same thing is seen as, as resistance and disengagement and troublemaking. Yeah. And that's that for me is quite fascinating. That, that you the two different literatures, the leadership versus the organizational behavior literature, treat them incredibly differently. Yeah, which means that you just get antibodies. Yeah, you but get do, antibodies, yeah. Do you think that you can create a culture that allows those troublemakers to be named and to have more of a lead in it or not? Well, I think you could, I think we're going to have to do a number of things. So so first of all, I think we're actually going to have to stop thinking of culture in terms of a single culture. It's got to become an ecosystem yes. version of the culture. Yes. So you're going to have differentiated and, mm. and contested versions mm. of, of the cultural mm. values, and that's, that's going to be seen as fine. So you first of all got to do that. And the second thing is we've got to fundamentally challenge the engagement model. Because the engagement mm. model, everyone, if you're having to, to appear engaged because anything that isn't fully engaged is, is correlated with the fact that you're costing the company money, which is total nonsense. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think there's any research tool that actually underpins that. It's just a sort of assumption. Mm-hmm. Then you're not you're not ever going to get the, the reveal and the voice because people no. are always going to be hiding the fact that, that, that they're not actually engaged in the way they're supposed to be engaged. You're back in dramatic intelligence, aren't you? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Which is where most people are, and, and mm. I still think, and I, I'm very with. Um, I mean, I, I don't like any particularly like the mainstream leadership books, but I'm very with Jim Collins's um, mm. argument here in that he says, look, well, there are level five leaders everywhere. We just don't know how to find them. Mm. Uh, and I think that that the research is that clearly shows that that there's these people in the body of the organisation who are potentially fantastic leaders yeah. and never ever get the opportunity to to get promoted because they're not playing the the networking dramatic intelligent game yeah and therefore it's not what the system recognizes rewards or makes visible yeah excellent richard time is running i I would like to ask you if you had a last call to action for leaders looking to get ready for tomorrow or rather today's workplaces yeah, well, work, workplace is interesting. I do quite a bit of stuff with with com- companies trying to look at the reimagine of workplace, and so mm. I, I think you know there's there's three things to, to imagine how to redesign a workplace. So one, you've got to design around individual work, and there are mm-hmm. two types of individual work. There's shallow individual work, which is all the business as usual, email, texting kind of stuff that can be done absolutely anywhere uh, in any kind of environment. But there's also deep or focused individual work, which is not being designed for particularly well, which is we are we are rediscovering doing work from home. You know what? I, mm. can, I can own a space in the corner of my room. I can shut out all the noise. I can have permanent work displayed. I can have my books yeah. and things. OK. And suddenly, wow, I'm more productive again. I think the data is clearly shown that. So one of the things is how do we. How do we re-inject that into workplace? We then go into the next level of work, which would be um, collective work. Yeah. And I, and I think, again, I certainly, certainly where I live, um, very few organisations are designing well for this. But one of them is proper collaborate, collaboration space. And this is stand-up walls, you know, where you're vertical working, yeah. a little bit of white noise, comfortable <laughs> furnishings. You can put sticky notes everywhere. You can keep, you know, if you want to book that room for three days, you can have that room for three days mm. while you're sorting out all of the collaborative challenges of a project before everyone goes off and does their individual bits. And connective work, which would be the breaking bread in the in-between space. You know, how are you going to have coffee together? Are you going to break bread together? Are you going to sit and have a 
uh, uh, chat outside of just st- staring on your computer together and have a beer together after work, mm. and, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But more of that because that clearly shares information and, and helps people improves productivity, improves uh, intent to stay and all kinds of things within organisations. So you've got to design for that. I think those those four are not that difficult. Mm. Two, I'm less, two I, I, I'm less aware of how you would design for would be the learning space. Yeah. So this is the impact kind of space. You know, how do, how do you develop and how do people develop and learn in, in organisational spaces? Mm. And, and how do organisational spaces genuinely help with wellbeing? Uh, I have ideas, and I think you're going beyond the space then. You're actually beginning to map intentional interactions um, Mm. rather than just spaces. Mm. But that's the third level. So I think the first four you can do reasonably Mm. quickly and easily. The last two I'm still thinking about, but it's it's sort of around, well, well, you know, well-being is more than just how well you are in the workplace it's yeah. it's how well you are with your family it's how well you are with your friends it's how much sleep you're getting it's how well you're eating how, mm. how do we integrate all of that into a workplace and beyond yeah. and the same with learning am i learning at work but then how do i have access to learning beyond work mm. that i can sort of integrate into my into my into my job rather than it feels like extra work bolted on and yeah. I'm already exhausted so I don't want to do it and I don't so, apply so, it and I don't apply it so yeah. so those two bits are the more difficult bit I think the first four bit if you get the first four bits done well you're going to start seeing how to do the other the other two bits as they're going forward fabulous food for thought and just the whole idea of intentionally designing for those first four bits I think mm-hmm. is is already massively impactful Richard, thank you for coming and sharing your research and thoughts with us. Where can people find out more about what you do? Um, we can connect with me on LinkedIn. Yeah. So um, just look for me there and go onto the EQLab website. Uh, or if you want to do the MBA module I teach, um, you can do it as a one-off module. And that's uh, Macquarie Business <laughs> School's global MBA module on Coursera. Excellent. Okay. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode, the insights and the learnings it brought. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation.